turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 18. Now, I'm sure all of you have the wonderful experience where your car just isn't working right. Anybody have one of those, you know? Okay, and it's just a special joy when your car is not working right. So, of course, what you have to do, unless you are very mechanically inclined, you have to go to one of the mechanics in town and kind of explain your problem, which is interesting. I, I, I'm sure they're trying to hold back their laughter when you're explaining your mechanical problems, you know, like, oh, it makes this kind of sound, and then you do it in front of everybody right there. And, you know, so let's say, you know, you're in a, your car's not working right, you take it in, you explain the whole situation, you make all the sound effects for the guy, and, and uh, he goes, you know what, after taking a look at your car for about an hour, he says, your, your car is pristine, man, there is absolutely nothing wrong with it, everything is just fine. Really? Okay, well, that's good. If you say it's good, it must be good. So you get down there and, and you start driving and all of a sudden you realize you don't have brakes. And uh, when they were taking the brakes apart there because you thought that might have been the issue, well, they forgot to put those brake pads back on. And furthermore, they drain that brake fluid and you don't have any. And you realize that you have no ability to stop. Well, once you eventually do stop, whether you come crashing into something, you're able to ride at a longer curve or whatever, you're eventually going to your, make your way back to that mechanic and just say, hey, what? is going on you told me my car was completely fine obviously it's not what are you doing the mechanic he's like oh no you're like no no mano to mano man me and you eye to eye what are you doing well to be honest with you i didn't want to tell you that your car had serious brake problems and stuff because you might feel bad about that and I don't want you to feel bad in my shop. I want you to just be happy. So I didn't want to tell you about that. I mean, I want people happy, and I want them just to feel like everything's okay. Hey, listen, I could have really hurt someone or killed myself. When it comes to my car, you need to tell me the truth. I'm not here for some sort of ego fantasy boost. You just tell me what's wrong. Even if it will hurt my feelings, I want to know, right? Or let's say you, you go to your doctor. You know, and you're feeling like, you know how it is. You go to the doctor and you got that appointment set up, maybe for that physical, you know, that you've been putting off for like 10 years or whatever. And, and the week before, you really start to make some cutbacks and stuff like that. So you can feel like, of course, uh, exercise, you know, uh, you know, and like maybe you walked around the block or something the, that week or something. And, you know, you feel pretty good about yourself because you've cut back from eating a half gallon of bluebell a night to a pint, you know, and you're like, yeah. And the doctor checks you out and like, yeah, you are a specimen of health. I, I could call you Olympian. You are. You should be congratulated. You're kind of taken aback. Like, Whoa. I mean, I made some cutbacks. I don't know I'm not that good, but doc says you are excellent. It's a complete fine bill of health. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. In fact, that, that day you decide that you're going to take the stairs versus the elevator, and you're making up that first flight. And all of a sudden, you get this crushing pain in your chest. You start sweating, and uh, eventually make your way to the hospital. And um, before they actually do the quadruple bypass on you, okay, and they said, you have what we are calling the widow maker, you know, the widow maker, and like, what? You're like, when I get through with this, I'm going to go visit my doctor, and you will. And you'll say, hey, what are you doing? You told me that I was in perfect physical health. And I, well, well I, I did that. Yeah, I know the, the real situation. I mean, you're worse off than the Pillsbury Doughboy. I, I knew that. I knew you were one jelly-filled donut away from eternity. I knew those things. But I, I didn't want to wreck your day. You seem so happy when you're in my office. I, and so I didn't want to tell you those things. What would you think of your doctor? You know, we're sitting here going, when it comes to my health, I want to know the truth. 
Don't be sending me off with some little fairy tale that everything's fine when in actuality it's not. We'd be upset with our mechanic, wouldn't we? We would be upset with our doctor. Let me ask you a question. What about your life? Do you really want to know the truth when it comes to about your life, your relationship with others, your relationship with God? See, God wants his people living in the truth. And when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into a relationship with the living God and he actually brings us into his family. And when we've got a family member that's that's going the wrong direction and that's sinning, what in the world are we supposed to do? I mean, do we just like uh, try to forget about it? Um, Do we kind of like, well, I just hope that they go away or what, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? Let me just tell you, what are we supposed to do here at Fellowship Bible Church when we have a member who is going full force, fourth gear into sin? What are we to do? Well, you and I, we need to know how God wants us to respond. We're a part of his family. He is the Lord of this church. How are we supposed to respond? You have got to have Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 down. This is the key passage on how God wants holiness being manifested in his church. And he says in verse 15, if your brother sins, when your brother sins, God actually has the the method and the means by which you and I are supposed to be involved. He actually spells it out in absolute utter clarity how you and I are supposed to respond to such a situation. Now, remember, we just got done as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, talking about the parable where Jesus talks about there's a shepherd. He's got ninety nine hundred sheep and one of them comes up missing. So what does he do? He locks up the other nine on the mountain and he goes out searching for that lost one. And when he finds it, he binds it up, brings it on his shoulders, and he rejoices because God loves the people he has brought into his family. And he is absolutely committed to their well-being and care. And you need to know this. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are living in light of the gospel. You're in relationship with Christ. If you should stray and move into patterns of sin in your life, if you're one of his... He's going to come and he's going to bring you back to him. And how does he do that? God oftentimes uses his people. Now, let me just tell you the reality of life. You and I, our flesh has a propensity to sin. We're just drawn to it like iron is to a magnet. We as soon as we stop, start focusing on Christ, and we start just kind of focusing on the life horizontal, even just the good things, and then we start to develop patterns where they really don't acknowledge Christ. We, we really don't spend time in prayer. We're never feeding on his word. Church all of a sudden becomes real optional. We start moving into patterns of isolation. We avoid confrontations with the truth. We, all of a sudden we develop patterns where, yeah, we're Christians, but we don't really live like it. We, we know Christ and we know of Christ, but we're not experiencing that joy of relationship. You know what happens? Our flesh beckons us to a myriad of doors of opportunity for sin. 
it is it's a struggle. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter seven. Every single one of us faces this struggle and these temptations and these solicitations to do what is evil. And if we've lost focus upon Jesus, if we're not walking in the spirit, if we're not yielded to Christ, we easily can succumb to them. Even the very, quote unquote, strongest among us is no match for Satan and his temptations apart from the power and the presence of Jesus. And now let me just tell you what usually happens when we sin. The spirit of God, because God places his Holy Spirit in our life, he brings about an awareness and a conviction that what we are doing is wrong. It's you've had this experience. I, I have it pretty regularly. If I do something that is wrong, thought something is wrong, said something, did something, didn't do something I was supposed to do. The spirit of God brings about a conviction. And you know what I'm, I do? I go back to the very first Bible verse I ever memorized as a Christian back then, back in college. First John one nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess that word means to agree with God. This isn't what I'm made for. I'm not made for sin. I'm made for you. I agree. This is a violation of your holiness. I confess my sins. He is faithful to forgive me. I am positionally always saved, eternally cleansed. But my feet get dirty as I walk around on this earth. I still have flesh. I still have a propensity to sin. And so I quickly, as soon as God brings it to my mind and my conviction, the the conviction to me, I want to confess it. But what happens, though, when your brother sins and he's not responding the way you're supposed to? Turning from that sin, repenting of it. Once again, experiencing the cleansing of Christ. What are we to do? Drop it, forgive it, ignore it. How are we supposed to respond to something? How are we supposed to do it as a family? And this is a family conversation that we're going to have here. The degree that each one of us implements what is said in this passage is the degree that holiness is going to be manifested in our church. If there is little application, if this is just like one of those messages like, oh, I was just kind of sleeping through or I was focused on the Super Bowl or whatever. If that is the reality, we're going to have little holiness in our midst. Now, when he says if your brother sins, he doesn't actually specify what particular kind of sin it is. Now, Paul, in as you look at some of his letters, he lists some of the different major sins that if someone continually persists in that need to be addressed. Let me give you some of them. Gross immorality. Um, another one, doctrinal heresy, like in Romans chapter 16. You have someone that is teaching, believing, propagating that which is false. Like, for instance, they're denying the deity of Christ. They are rejecting the Trinity. Um, they no longer say the Bible is the authority, which we're to base our beliefs. If they are, they are actively involved in themselves believing what is wrong and they're swaying others, this has to be addressed. But he doesn't actually name the particular kind of sin. I mean, it could not only be any of the things that we mentioned, but it could be like if someone physically attacks you, if they slander your character, they deceive you, they commit some sort of crime. Any overt sin that is going to be a blemish upon the testimony and the body of Christ, it has to be addressed. So how are we supposed to go about that? Now, let me just throw this at you. What happens when churches don't take Christ seriously? When holiness, that doesn't really matter. 
we're just after the fact that people come. We hope they're happy. We want them to laugh a little bit, have a good time, give a little bit of money, walk out those doors. What happens when we buy in to just entertainment in the church and we leave holiness behind? You ever heard of something called AIDS? Yeah? Uh, come on. We all, we've all heard of AIDS. Do you know what AIDS is? It's Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. You have AIDS when you have HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus. And what that happens, that illness, that makes it where your immune system no longer can ward off and fight off things it normally could. For instance, like bacteria, fungi, viruses, parasites that you get into your body. When you've got a healthy immune system, you know what? Your body addresses those things. But when you have HIV, you lose the capacity to do that. And so what happens is all of a sudden things that normally would have been addressed no longer are you're able to capable of fighting them off and warding them off. And it's a painful, serious, deathly disease. When a church no longer is fully yielded to Jesus Christ, no longer is in the word and, and growing in godliness when abiding in Christ is just an, an afterthought for a bygone generation. When holiness doesn't matter, when it's all about just a kind of like a club mentality and keeping folks kind of entertaining rather than engage with Christ, it's like the church has AIDS. It does not have the ability to fight off things that it normally should. And instead of living in the reality of the gospel in this relationship with Jesus Christ, the church moves away and disease sets in and it runs rampant because no one's submitting and yielding to what God says you're supposed to do about it. Let me ask you this. If you saw your grandmother and she was kind of confusing the rat poison with the creamer when she was kind of stirring it into her coffee, how many of you would step in and go, no, no, grandmother, no. How many of you do it? I'd like to see who loves their grandmother. Oh, that's pretty good. Half of you. <laughs> All right, listen. The one, if you didn't put your hand up, I want you talking to me after service. You are supposed to love your grandmother. All right? If you saw that happening, what would you do? No. Would you like, I don't think that's a good idea. I'm not sure how that'll take. No. You'd do whatever it took to make sure that didn't happen. And if you didn't, you don't love your grandmother. Hey, we're in a family. If we see another believer in sin, do you love your grandmother? Do you love your neighbor? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? What are we to do when we see sin moving rampant? What happens when we've got a rogue male and all of a sudden they become like a sexual predator among the ladies in our church? What are we supposed to do? Or what happens when you've got a rogue female and she's swindling people? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to handle it? Well, Jesus outlines it with utter clarity. He says, first of all, in verse 15, first thing you need to do is you need to confront the person who is sinning and you do so in private. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins, go. You see that word? That is a present imperative. You know what imperative means? It's a command. It's not a suggestion. You might want to consider this. It is a command. You are to go and what? And show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. 
If you see your brother sinning and you're aware of it, what are you to do? He says, go. You need to do it privately. This is this is not a situation where you see something and you're aware of something. Maybe it's a coworker of yours or and, and it's a believer. Maybe they're part of our church. You're aware of this. You're not to go. Ooh. And then you go. This is this is a classic Christian move. You get your friends around. I've, I've got a little prayers request. I need some support. And you're looking around. Make sure no one's listening. And then you just go blabbing on about the situation, blah, 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 about all the different things that you think that might be happening. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. You're wrong. Jesus says, I want you to go and I want you to go in private. Let me tell you, if you love someone, you can tell them pretty much anything. They may not necessarily accept what you have to say, but they will know the heart behind it. And so you go in love. You see, the body polices itself. And all of us, at some point in our life, we're going to function like a white blood cell, and we're going to have to go and attack the virus. We're going to have, hey, what is going on? And so it's a private matter, and you're just you're going to have to go up and say, hey, I want you to know I love you, and you know that, but I'm seeing this. And you go and approach them to it. Now, friends, this is, this is something that all of us probably will have to do in our lifetime as believers. Is we'll see a sin issue, we'll have to confront it. I was reading about this guy, his name is Ben Patterson. He was explaining and writing about his experiences working at a Christian camp. He had worked at this conference center for about six years. His boss was a guy by the name of Jim Slevkove. And this guy, Benny Patterson, uh, he had a pretty responsible position. He was working with all the junior high and high school students. And uh, he had a lot of fun with them, a lot of responsibility, but he couldn't pass up the opportunity for practical jokes. And I don't know if it just comes with youth ministry or whatever, but there's just something about that. They just kind of come in your head. And uh, he, he would run different practical jokes. One time he took this laxative gum and he passed it off to his various coworkers as the real thing, right? And uh, sure enough, it had its uh, purgative effect on everybody, you know, and word got back about all the coworkers and how they were kind of no longer able to function like they once were. Back to Jim's boss. Jim said, Ben, I'd, I'd like you to stop by for a little chat. Now, apparently when uh, uh, Jim told Benny, I want you to stop by for a little chat, when Benny shows up in his office, Benny was just a little bit put off, like, what am I being called in the office for? And then he saw Jim, and Jim kind of sits back in his chair, and he puts his eyes up onto the ceiling. And he's saying, Benny, Benny's got these tears running down his eyes. Benny, Benny. And all of a sudden... Benny's best arguments just kind of evaporated. In fact, this is what he says. You know, my arguments disappeared like the vapor they were. I'd gone way over the line of propriety, not to mention compassion. I owed and paid Jim and my victims an apology. We talked about my impulsiveness and vindictiveness and the meaning of Christian community and the responsibilities that go with leadership. And even in saying the hard things to me, Jim was always gracious His goal was not to tear down, but to build up. That is the right attitude. So when you and I, we encounter a situation, we got a fellow believer in sin. How do we address it? What are we to do? How do you approach a sensitive issue in the life of another? Well, first thing, make sure it is a sin issue and not a preference. Just make sure they're not doing something that you don't happen to like. 
Okay, like you're the queen bee and everybody has to make you happy. All right. Make sure it is a sin issue. One of the ways you can do that is to actually write out on paper specifically what the sin issue is and put a couple Bible verses by it that directly speak to it, not indirectly. Okay, like I kind of see this here and it ties in with something I thought about in Amos and no, 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 no. Directly, how is this a sin? Okay, and then second of all, you want to make sure that your own hands and your heart are clean and focused on the cross. Okay, you've got to first address any sin issues in your life. Remember what Jesus had to say? If you're going to be involved in getting specks out of people's eyes and I intend for you to do so, i.e. this passage. Remember what he said in Luke chapter six? I want you to first make sure that you've got logs out of your own eye. And he's using hyperbole. But the idea is that if you have a log in your eye, it's going to be pretty hard to get the speck out of the other guy's eye. Because you've got a major issue yourself. You've got to address it. It, When you confront sin, it is going to take spiritual integrity. And you're not trying to win an argument. You're trying to win over your brother. That means that your heart has to be right if you're going to be involved in this. So if you kind of have the idea, like, I can't believe what I just saw or heard about I'm going to make them squirm like a worm when I bring this to their attention. If you have that kind of mindset, guess what? You're not ready. You're not qualified to be involved in God's work in bringing and restoring holiness in the church. You see, what it's going to take is a quietness before God. Your sin, the other person's sins, all of it to the cross of Jesus Christ. Fully yielded, you come with the mindset of Jesus First, let me give you something else. When you're going to confront sin in the life of another person, you've got to be tender, clear. That's huge. Clear. If you if you struggle with clarity, write it out clear. Be prayerful and gentle. I mean, you're dealing with sensitive issues here. Let me give you a classic text on how to do this. Galatians chapter six, verse one. He says, brethren, if any man is caught in any trespass, not just some, but any trespass, they're caught in it. They're entangled in it. They're ensnared by sin. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Remember, you see that word restore? That is the word that they would use for a doctor who is setting a bone or if you were mending nets. You are bringing back something to a former condition or a right placement. You who are spiritual, this is how you do it. Now, what is our tendency? When we when we see sin in the life of another person, this is we usually do one of these three things. We usually ignore the sin like I didn't see that. (laughs) I'm not even. okay. we either ignore it. We isolate ourselves from that person like. Okay, I think I'll hang out with these friends for a little while. Okay, we isolate or the third and and this puts you then in the sin category. We inflict some sort of pain in their life, especially we do this when they've hurt us. You did this to me. And so I'm going to one up you. Right. You made me feel bad. You made me look bad or whatever. Uh, You hurt me. I'll show you what I'm made of, and then you go try to hurt them. And now we got two people sinning, okay? You just made the matter worse. 
What are we to do? What does the text say, friends? You're to go to your brother and you show him his fault and you do so in private. Let me just tell you what what this looks like. You just say, hey, in total kindness and humility, with love, through prayer, walking in the spirit, you say, hey, you know what? I see something in your life and I'd like to ask you a few questions. What, what is going on? How, how is this is happening? Uh, could I speak to you? Something is troubling me about something that I'm seeing. And then you go with the heart to listen. I, I'd like you to tell me. You're not going as a judge. You are going to want to help understand the situation and, if possible, bring about restoration. There may be, you may be misreading the situation. You don't probably have all the facts. Maybe there's something that, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand that. That's great. But you go with that kind of attitude. You go prepared to listen. And if, if there is a person that has several major issues, you know, like they're doing this and this and this, what do I do? Focus on the one that is most critical first. Okay? And once they experience the healing and the power of the Lord working in their life to bring about healing and restoration, then those others, God will very well likely bring that to their attention. Or he may even use you. I particularly like the counsel of a fourth century pastor by the name of Chrysostom on how to handle these situations. And he writes, correct him, but neither as a foe nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicines. Or like Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. That's how we're to go about it. You know, the best thing, the most important thing that you can do is to go and address this sin issue Speak to them privately and tell them, listen, how can I help? When a person sees that you really you love the Lord and you love them, they oftentimes will respond favorably. In fact, that is the goal. Look at that in verse 15. He says, you have won your brother. If he listens to you, if he sees, oh, man, God means business. He sent you to talk to me and he repents. He goes, you're right. I have sinned against God. If he's sinned against other people, he's like, I'm willing to make restitution. If I stole something from him, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to repent. If I've broken a relationship, I'm willing to reconcile. Why does he do this? Because your brother has been one, and that is the goal. Now, when we're going through this, there's likely this has happened to you. I'm not going to ask you, how many of you had someone come and confront you on your sin problem? Okay, I could ask you if you love your grandmother. I don't want hands up on that one. But likely a lot of us have had someone care enough about us and about Christ and his holiness to come and to talk to us about a sin issue in our life. And you know what? We call those people blessed. Those people show by their actions and their guts and their courage that the holiness of God matters to them and they love us. But what happens What happens when that doesn't go so well? You confront another believer. You ask him to explain. Like, get out of here. None of your business. What I do in my own personal time is none of your business. Who I flirt with at the office doesn't matter. You stay out of it and you keep your mouth shut. Let's say it doesn't go too well. (laughs) What are you supposed to do then? Well, you give the Holy Spirit a little bit of time to work. God is always in the process of bringing his lost ones back to him. But if they do not respond, verse 16, step two, involve two or three witnesses. But if he does not listen to you, 
Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If they don't listen to you, you're supposed to take two or three others. They don't have to be witnesses that they saw the exact same thing. You just bring them along. Okay, so after a certain period of time has taken place, uh, there's no timetable given here. I wouldn't like make it like, well, like two hours later, here we are with a couple others. Okay, Uh, did you get all worked out? You didn't. Okay, here we go. We're we're escalating this process real quickly. But it also wouldn't be like a year from now, like, oh, yeah. And then you show up with your two or three witnesses. No, that tells them that you're not real serious and this isn't a real big deal. But then you bring two or three witnesses. And the purpose is that is that these people can also be a voice of wisdom in this situation. They can also witness this person's response. They also may be able to actually help this person see how this sin could be overcome and is through Christ. And they don't have to go this way. But let me tell you something else about this two or three witnesses. If you have someone that says, you know, this person is sinning and I went to him once. And then they bring the two or three witnesses. You might find out that after listening to the person that supposedly is sinning, that actually it's probably more the accuser that's sinning. They don't have the whole thing. They have kind of tainted the story. They have missed out some pretty key aspects of this. And you might be able to say, no, you know what, here, after we kind of get a fuller picture, I, I think that you're misreading this. You, the one who is bringing, quote unquote, the sin issue. There's the, the beauty of Scripture and how Jesus has set this up. There's protection, wholeness, integrity to it. And so you go and the whole goal of this is what? For them to see like, wow, Jesus is serious about this. Here's the church, two or three of them. And hopefully that gets their attention. And let me tell you, in the majority of cases, all it takes is step one. If it has to go to step two, that usually does it. People see it because the Lord has been drawing them back to himself. They see it. But what happens? What happens when they still go, no, I'm going to do it my way. Thank you very much. Get out of here. Well, step three. You tell the church. Now, by this time, verse 17, if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then there is step four. By the time you get to step three, you're probably going to involve the elders of the church. Sometimes when people see a sin issue, this is what they do. Oh, my. And oh, I better do something. Send a little email to the pastor. Sin. Oh, done. And you just leave it there. Pastors deal with that. That's right. That's why we have these pastors. We just send the email. We're done. We did our thing, right? No, that's not what the text says. The text says you go. You're involved. God, the holiness is a matter for all of us. But by this time, if you're at step three, you're involving the elders and the church. And what will happen is the church will be made aware of the situation. Now, what this will look like, uh, you know, church of fellowship size, there's a lot of people. There may not be where you even recognize or even know who this person is. If there's if we were having a situation like that, like there was someone on this side that you never see, but you usually sit over here or whatever. They're never in your small group. So what would happen is we're going to tell the church, we're going to tell the people that that person's involved in that ministry, that small group, that that group of folks that they're with. Anybody that's affected by their sin, that they can see that pattern or that they've been affected by it, they're going to be told. And what this looks like is 
You don't go through all the gory details like, oh, and then they did this. And, oh, this is really bad. Children, close your ears. You don't you don't through all the gory details. You say what has been done, how it's been addressed and how this person has responded. And you tell it to the church for this purpose. So that the church will be moved to pray and to reach out in love and bring this person back. Because what? Jesus is bringing the lost sheep back into his fold. But what happens if they will not listen to the church? Look at this. Verse 17. B. You tell it to the church. But if he will not, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This person has had an opportunity to respond. They received a certified letter. This is going to happen. It is written in our bylaws. You know this is going to happen. It is written in Scripture. You will not respond. You just kind of float out there and keep doing your own thing. You keep plowing into your sin. Then you're to be regarded as an unbeliever. Why? Because you are acting and behaving like one. And we have no evidence that you really have a life saving, changing, transformation relationship with Christ. Because God doesn't seem to be evident in your life. So that is where we're at. In fact, They're outside of the fellowship. That doesn't mean that they couldn't come into the church. But you can't like be involved in things like communion. You can't be involved in leadership. You can't be involved in ministry because the only those who believe are into this fellowship and experiencing that. You ever heard of excommunicant? Okay, excommunication. That means ex. You were a former communicant. You formerly received communion. You were formerly a part of when the church comes together and they remember the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer, you're not supposed to participate. In, and if you are a person who is willfully sinning, even if all these steps have gone through, the warning is you simply cannot be involved until you repent and restored back to the fellowship with Christ. So that is what he says. Now, Jesus then says this. I want you to do this. Now, for the the apostles, they were actually very familiar with discipline. They saw it in their synagogues. This wasn't a foreign concept. I'm I'm presenting this to you. And you're like, what in the world? Never even knew such a thing was in the Bible, especially if you're a new Christian. Never even heard of such a thing. Not to these guys. They had heard it and seen it. But Jesus wanted them to know, I'll be with you in this. But I want you to do this. And so he says, verse 18, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is reminiscent of Matthew 16, where he says pretty much the exact same thing to Peter. And what he's saying is this. You don't do things and dictate to heaven how things are done. Rather, the church will actually do what God has already done in heaven. And when he talks about binding and loosing, this is rabbinic terms of that which is someone has been freed from or restored to. And so what he's saying is like if you've been if you say you're in sin and you're outside of the fellowship, you need to know that's already a matter that's been settled in eternity with me. On the other hand, if you tell someone you've been forgiven, just the sheer fact that you're repentant and, and desire is Christ and wanting to go his way. You are forgiven. You're free. You are no longer facing your any any sort of condemnation whatsoever. You've been released from your sin. You are free. You are forgiven. Everything is great with you and God. It's already been settled. Jesus says, 
verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two or two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven. When he talks about agreement, he's saying you pray. And when I bring agreement in your mind in this situation on church discipline, you know that I am there working in your midst. And that's exactly what he says in verse 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. I'm working. You know why I want you to go through this process of, of church discipline, of you being involved and in sin matters in the other person's life? It's because holiness matters because I am in your midst. That's why you do it. Now, it's really interesting. You always hear verse 20 at like Christian rock concerts. They always, uh, almost everyone I've been to, somehow that gets entered in there, which is really interesting because the context is in church discipline, which is really the farthest thing from that what's ever happening there. Okay. Let's take that in context. Uh, Sometimes people will think like, well, two or three. Well, guess what? Even if you pray by yourself, you are just as effective. Jesus prayed by himself, right? James is the prayer of a righteous man. So don't think, well, we got to get two or three together. Hey, you pray. It's effective. He's talking about the issue of church discipline. Make sure you always take the scripture in context. And if you agree, you will come together. That word agree is where we get our word symphony from. Symphoneo. You have come together. You are in agreement. You need to know I am working in your midst because holiness matters to me. All right. What do you think? Time for an uh, illustration. Should we? Uh, I got a few names. No. no. Okay. I scared you, didn't I? All of a sudden, whoa. People are like, oh. What Some of you are going, I have never heard anything like this in my life kidding me why in the world do we not do this in american churches most of you have never seen any of this happen it's like as if you were thomas jefferson and somebody cut this out of your bible and you've never seen this put into practice why is it that we don't do it well one of the reasons is we hold sacred the idea that unless it is criminal it doesn't matter we pretty much today even in most churches kind of have the idea like at the end like in the book of judges it's one of the themes you find it the very last verse of the judges where everyone just does whatever is right in their own eyes. You do, sure. It's okay with you, not okay with me, but that's fine. You do whatever you want to do. And we've taken that mindset and we have brought it into the church. So the church kind of functions like that. Another reason is that absolutes in our culture are not popular. To say something is absolutely wrong, ew, you can't say that. Just It's not your preference. Just go with that. Don't say that it's wrong. No. God is the authority. He's upholding justice. He has the ability and the right to say what is right and wrong. A lot of folks aren't so good with that. And the other thing in America is when you confront sin in another person's life, they go, I don't like that. That made me feel uncomfortable. So you know what you do? You get in your car, you go a half mile down the road, you go to another church and just show up there. And then you go and you always leave with a righteous reason. Ah, you know, I didn't like the music so much. Or, you know, the service times weren't working for my schedule. And, I mean, that is oftentimes the level of commitment people have to a local church. And they just kind of, or they just drop out altogether. So this is like a foreign text. So would fellowship, would fellowship ever do this? Would we go through step one, two, three, four? Come on, 21st century. Would we? 
Yes. Another question. Have we? I heard it. Because some of you have been around here for a while. Yes, we have. Grieve me and the elders. It took me a long time to work through that one. Grievous. We would. Why? Because this is Christ's church. This is his church. He's the Lord. We're going to do it his way. Holiness matters. Frankly, I would never be belong to a church. I'd never be involved in a church that didn't take holiness and sin seriously. I just, I just wouldn't. Because God takes it seriously. You know, G.K. Chesterton had this great quote. He said, love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. You know, we always say, love is blind, right? You just don't see it. No. He says, that's the last thing it is. He says, love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Friends, you and I, we are bound together through the blood of Christ. We need each other. We are inextricably tied to each other because of the relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the head. We're the body. We function together just like your body does physically. So we do spiritually. And your holiness matters to this group. The degree that we take God seriously, we take holiness seriously, is the degree that holiness will be manifested in our midst. But let me tell you, holiness matters because Jesus is in our midst. And it's in the context of a loving relationship that we are willing to address sin issues. By the way, you know how the best way to keep to keep the camp pure and out of sin? Well, think of it. What's the best way to keep weeds out of your lawn? Uh, you know, anybody know the answer? Well, this is good. Okay, this is your lawn tip for the week. You know, how, you know the best way to keep your lawn vibrant, full of good grass? Is you fertilize it. Do you know that? You've got a healthy lawn, the weeds just have a hard time living there because the grass is so healthy. Well, friends, the same with the church. I have found that if a church is to be healthy, there has to be each with each person a personal abiding in Christ. And what does that word abiding mean? That means literally to make your home in Christ. You're living in Christ. There has to be an emphasis on personal discipleship where we are involved at a heart level with one another. We're helping each other grow in Christ. And there has to be the exposition, the systematic exposition of the word so that God brings about transformation through his revelation. So we don't have some guy just bringing up his favorite topics and his favorite stories and keeping people entertained that God, on the other hand, uses his word to bring about transformation. And if you have any question, does, does Jesus really care about the spiritual condition of his churches? All you have to do is read Revelation chapter one, two and three. And you'll find out that each individual church, he knows and he cares and he intends to address it. So, friends, holiness matters because Jesus is in our midst. He's here and he actually dwells in the hearts of those who love him. He lives in our hearts by faith. There's a pastor by the name of Bob Alberg. He is a pastor of Roscoe Evangelical Free Church in Roscoe, Illinois. They had a situation about seven and a half years ago. They had a guy in their church. All of a sudden, something flips, and he commits serial multiple adultery while he's married. And uh, he eventually comes to a point, you know, they go through all these steps, and their church is just heartbroken over this. They go through these steps, and he comes, when Bob recounts this, when they confronted this man and said, listen, we, 
We have got to tell the church, you leave us no choice. We're committed to Christ, whether you are or not. And this guy said, you know what? I know what I'm doing and I know what you have to do. So you just do what you think you need to do, because I never plan to darken the doors of this church again anyway. So why should I care? That's his response. So they did. They told the folks that needed to know in the church and they prayed. And for two and a half years, they prayed, well, that wife kept coming and they'd pray with her and lift her up. And they prayed that God would do whatever it took to break this man of his sin and to bring him back. Well, two and a half years later, Pastor Bob gets a phone call from this guy says, I need to meet with you. <laughs> I hadn't seen him in a long time. Uh, what guy walks into his office just literally starts weeping on Pastor Bob's shoulder. It's broken completely. And then he goes on to say, I, I am broken over my sin. He told him the hound of heaven had been pursuing him for two years. He says, I want to make it right with God and with my wife. He said, you know, I've been gone. You know where I've been. He was apparently with the military. He was, he was sent over to Iraq to process the bodies of fallen soldiers. And every single day he was faced with mortality and how quickly life can be just diminished and gone. And he said, God used these experiences to break me. And he asked for the forgiveness for God. He, pre- he presented his situation to the elders in total repentance. He worked on restoration of his wife. His wife said, I could never trust that man again. But she was shocked because he was a different man. He was now God's man. And Pastor Bob wrote, it was an amazing joy to present this man restored to fellowship with Christ and to the body and to his marriage because he became a trophy of God's grace. You see, he was a lost sheep that had been brought into the fold, brought back by a loving Savior. And friends, Pastor Bob wrote, you know what? It doesn't always work the way we'd like it to work. But we're committed to doing it God's way on his timetable. And friends at Fellowship, we're committed to doing it God's way according to his word. For this is his church. For holiness matters because Jesus is in our midst. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just the amazing power of your word. And Lord, if there is sin in the camp, and you've made that very clear to whoever that might be, Lord, would they just right now confess their sin, turn from it, and realize there is great joy, forgiveness, life found in Jesus. And Father, I pray that we'd not be merely hearers of the word, but doers of it. We want you to fully accomplish your purposes in our life. We want to live in the fullness of Christ. And so, Lord, by the power of your spirit, allow us to do as you've told us and directed us in your word. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.